With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's Adam Spinella over in beautiful Virginia. We're going to talk about all of what we saw in Feast Week this week. It was a loaded college basketball slate. Honestly, I don't think we will get this many great college basketball games loaded into a one-week window until we get to conference tournament season. It was an unbelievable week, Adam. But first and foremost, how was your Thanksgiving? How are things going, man? Hey, Sam. Always good to see you. A nice, relaxing Thanksgiving on my part. Uh, two rounds of turkey stuffing potatoes and all of the fixings on Thursday. Leftovers Friday before I caught a plane back here, uh, back home. So all, all was really good on my end. How was your Thanksgiving there across the pond? It was beautiful. It was great. Went over to Laura's parents' house. There were a bunch of people there, and it was a great time. We ate a bunch of turkey and ham and stuffing and mac and cheese. Laura and I made mac and cheese, and it was, uh, oh, boy. I made some really good mac and cheese this time with Laura. It was like five or six different cheeses. You got to get the seasonings in there. You got to go a little bit of onion powder, a little bit of smoked paprika. You got to get it all. Uh, a little bit of garlic powder. You got to just make sure it's all uh, very flavorful. And then you just load up on cheese, load up on as much gooey, melty cheese as possible. It's just the best, man. Sign me up for next year, please. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, book, <laughs> I'll book the plane ticket. We'll do, we'll do a kind of a home and home Thursday here. In uh, the home and home. Saturday, we'll do it over in Australia. It'll be perfect. That's great because we lose a day uh, flying over over to the United States, so it'll take that long. Uh, okay, Adam, we just finished up watching Duke lose to Purdue in the PK Invitational uh, tournament game, title game. We just saw North Carolina lose to Alabama in the worst four-overtime game that anyone has ever seen in the history of college basketball. I want to start with Duke and North Carolina for sure. Uh, North Carolina, there's been this big, like, it feels analytics discussion versus, you know, how do you rank teams discussion before North Carolina lost its previous two games? Should North Carolina, you know, as long as they keep winning, continue to be ranked number one, even though it's been clear from the start of the season that North Carolina has problems right now. Uh They do not defend. That is the number one issue. This was a team that was over the course of the last third of last season when they went on their run toward the title game. So remove the first two thirds of the season when they sucked. Uh, The first or the final third of the season, they really started to defend. They finished in the top 20 nationally in adjusted defensive efficiency, according to Bart Torvik, over the course of February and March. And I guess they played a game in April as well. So 
to me, when I watch North Carolina at this point, I just see a team that is really struggling to keep guys in front of them, to actually be able to defend and stop guards from getting any sort of penetration, stop guys from getting kickouts. And uh, it's just not been a very effective defense at this point of the year for the Tar Heels. And I, I don't think, obviously, now that they've lost twice, there was no case for them to be number one. Uh, there's just not really a case for it even coming into PKI or PK85, whatever we're calling it, uh, just because their defense had not been quite good enough at this point. There are a lot of things to, to talk about from that four overtime game uh, that we just watched with North Carolina and Alabama. And I, I think, you know, Carolina's defense has been a consistent trend throughout the season. Like they got to the point this afternoon where they were just trying to kind of saying screw it and switching everything and trying to bait Alabama guards into trying to beat their bigger bodies one on one. And luckily for them, like Alabama's guards couldn't really do it consistently, particularly in those overtime periods. Like I, th- I think Pete Nance is a good individual defender. I just think that the infrastructure and having two like offensive-minded, fairly porous guards in their backcourt is is doing them in. It's going to be a real, real challenge to to make up for what Love and Davis kind of don't give you consistently on the defensive end of the floor. Well, and it's really interesting too. I feel like Hubert Davis still hasn't quite figured out how to best utilize Pete Nance either. Like. They didn't really play him in the first two and a half overtimes in the final five minutes of that game against Alabama. And I was wondering why. And it is strange that they just trust Puff Johnson more than Pete Nance at this point. Pete Nance is like really good at basketball. Yeah. Uh, you saw him, he like gets switched. Here's the other thing too if they actually want to switch one through five, which is what Hubert Davis did throughout the entirety of this game for reasons that. Don't make total sense to me. Um, I don't totally know why they're doing that. But if they do, Pete Nance is a killer switch five man to have. Yes, He can actually stay in front of guys like Javon Quinterly. He can stay in front of guys like Brandon Miller that are driving. He's legitimately a switchable five man and like athletic and mobile enough to guard at the four spot. So I, I don't really understand why they did that. I don't understand why they're switching one through five right now when Armando Baycott is out there. Um, I think Baycott is fine against guys like Brandon Miller that are a little bit longer and don't really handle the ball that well, frankly, in Brandon's case. And we'll talk about him momentarily. But like, I think that in general, they do poorly by Armando Baycott, having him end up on an island with guards regularly and it just results in blow buys and him really, really struggling. And picking up fouls. You know, we, we talk about this when, when we see a great rebounder like Oscar Shibway. He is so good at just cleaning up the glass. You need to keep him near the basket. You don't want to switch with him because now all of a sudden he's guarding 18 feet and out instead of inside the, the 10 feet around the basket. He can't pull down those defensive rebounds as quickly. If you're switching Baycott, you're really taking away the biggest strength that he provides your defense, which isn't just interior protection. It's rebounding. It's not giving up second chance points and switching him out there. Just it, it negates his biggest contribution on that end of the floor. So I'm with you. If, if they're going to play Baycott heavy minutes, which they should, he's their best player. Don't switch him out in every type of situation, but I agree with you. There is a 
a lineup that can be constructed where you have Nance as a small ball five, and then you're switching everything. And then you're trying to dare people to go one-on-one with you because particularly against Alabama, I just think their guards, their, their, their face-up drivers don't have that first step to blow past people uh, in ways yeah. that, that didn't make this a, a poor matchup on that end. But if, if Hubert wants to lean into the switching thing more, it's got to be in the moments when Baycott's not in the game. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you mentioned the offensive rebounding. Like, Auburn had 21 offensive rebounds in this game. They missed, uh, it looks like, 53 shots. They were getting offensive rebounds on 35% of their misses, which is a crazy, like, it's a very high number. It's not like, you know, astronomical, like, 50% number that you'll see sometimes, but it's way too high for a team that you should have a significant rebounding advantage on when you play Pete Nance and Armando Baycott in the front court. That should be the strength of your defense is being able to end possessions and being able, hopefully like to use the guards. Like I think Caleb Love's actually okay defensively, especially on the ball. I, I think RJ Davis is small, but like at least works hard on the sure. defensive end. Leaky Black is one of the best defenders in college basketball. Yes. Blank. And he did a phenomenal job on Brandon Miller in this game when he was locked onto him. So I, I just don't, I, I just don't understand the scheme right now for North Carolina. Uh, I, I did not like the way Hubert Davis coached that game at all. This isn't to say Hubert's a bad coach. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I just thought that he let Caleb Love kind of get a little bit too shot happy. He didn't really try and run oh, yeah. enough. Yeah. It didn't really run enough. Um, yeah actions to try and get the ball out of his hands frankly uh it was weird it was a weird, yeah, weird it was it was frustrating in those after timeout situations that they continued to go back to kind of isolation or not running anything you saw at the end yeah. of I, I can't i'm like bill walton out here i can't even remember what overtime it was but i think it was the end of the third overtime when they had that costly turnover on that skip pass trying to find caleb on the opposite side of the floor like they just wasn't really running much of anything out there and and love definitely gets a little bit trigger happy. A lot of times that's on a coach to, you know, find the right buttons to press because you needed his scoring in order to stay in things, but you can't live with all of the, like he took what 3,482 shots today in four overtime games. Like he was just out there gunning. And I think that RJ Davis had some moments out there offensively. He showed maybe a little bit more uh, could have been distributed on his plate as well, which I mean, he probably took what 20, 21 shots in the game anyway. He took 24. 24, yeah. And it just it that's a lot for your backcourt, but it did feel like it was a little bit more love dominant than than it should have been. Yeah. Uh let's go to Alabama now. Sure. This was Brandon Miller's worst game of the season, yep. I thought, by far. Leaky Black has a lot to do with that, right? Leaky Black is absolutely one of the best defenders that you will find in the country. He's long, he's athletic. He is a real pest. He has great hands. He's super disruptive in anything that you're going to try and do. Having said that, I think that this game did open up some of the concerns that you and I have talked a little bit about with Brandon Miller in terms of his so far early in Alabama season willingness to float a little bit on the perimeter to try and hunt open threes from that 28 to 23 foot range. Like he's making them from NBA range, but it's more how 
how what is how is he going to adjust once teams guard him out there? And North Carolina guarded him out there. And I think, frankly, he was probably a little bit tired in terms of his legs from having played three games yeah. in four nights because yes. you could see it in terms of his shot falling short a majority of the time uh, when he missed shots. So you almost don't want to take too, too much out of a three-game and four-night situation. I, I think that there's a lot to be said about that as well. But Brandon Miller doesn't have like an elite-level first step. You know, you saw him largely like get contained by Armando Baycott. I think he had three attempts on an island where he tried to drive him. And, you know, Baycott swatted him once, got really good contests on him twice. Uh, the other thing is that his handle is just not great unless it's in a straight line. And also we saw a couple moments tonight where his footwork driving to the rim was actually a little bit off. The one that stands out is the two-on-one in transition where he got the ball on the wing, on the left wing, tried to get downhill and like almost got caught between steps. He got bailed out with a foul call, but like it's that little craft stuff. uh, Once he gets into the paint as a driver, you can see that he's very comfortable stopping and starting and, you know, hitting the brakes, being able to, intelligently change gears in order to get bigs strung out on him. And I think that once he plays in the NBA where there are oceans of open space and the mid range area is a little bit bigger and he's pulling Armando 28 feet away from the basket, as opposed to 21 feet away from the rim, which is what you have to do in college. He's going to have an even bigger advantage on those guys. That ability to get guys pulled away from the basket in mismatch situations is going to be really great as he moves up levels. I just don't know if he can do it right now in a way that is all that effective for college basketball. Totally agree with everything you said right there, Sam. Uh, We've been talking about Brandon Miller for several months in the context of what we saw him do in high school and AAU as being a really mid-range heavy type of scorer. Great in isolations, creative, makes tough ones, has a smooth-looking jumper. And we had two questions offensively. How is he going to put pressure on the rim? And is he going to be able to extend his range out to three? We answered the latter of those pretty resoundingly to the start of the season, that he is a good, a real shooter. The touches there, range deep beyond NBA line, definitely confident, you know, a lot better when he's square, when he's got his legs underneath him than anything else. But he is going to be able to stretch defenses far out to the three-point line. We still don't have much of an answer to what he can do in terms of putting pressure on the rim. I think he's a very smart, cerebral player. He understands how to attack defenses. If he tightens his handle a little bit more, he's probably going to be a solid pick-and-roll type of initiator. But he doesn't have that burst, that separation, and it's hindered a little bit more by the handle not being really creative right now. Uh, But that's an athletic concern that I have. A a lot of people might want to compare him to you know, Jabari last year down at Auburn, who had some similar complaints about just ability to get to the rim in one-on-one situations, being a a really good jump shooter, but a little bit mid-range heavy in isolations. I don't think their body types or their games are exactly the same because I see a little bit more like playmaking ability when Brandon Miller has the ball in his hands. Is that a, so I was talking to a friend of the show, Kyle Mann, about this and, and he mentioned that th- that's something that has come up a little bit on draft Twitter with Brandon Miller, that he's like Jabari Smith. 
which I don't really see because I think they play different games. Like some of the critiques about first step or not being able to get all the way to the basket and finish cleanly, it, it's it's the same type of critique, but it's not the same method in which they earn it. If that yeah, they're sense. not even they're not similar like no. at all. They like Brandon Miller can put the ball like in between his legs and can string out defenders like and can actually like set himself up in an isolation situation. Jabari's just like shooting over the top of people. Yeah, like his handle is a, is a real problem. Like yeah. he he's a he is an athletic big that you can play at the four yeah. and get like a marginal advantage with him in help defense, or hopefully long term can play him at the five and get like a super marginal advantage with the shooting. Right? He is always been more of that like Brandon is a wing like Brandon can actually create he can stop and start like I said earlier whenever it comes to getting him uh getting bigs out on an island against him those situations by the time he turns 22 23 24 those are going to be like actual mismatch situations for him uh because he is going to improve the handle for him it's not athletic deficiencies it is tightening up my handle deficiencies and just, you know, he has the creativity of handle. He has the flexibility through his hips to be able to handle. It's more just being able to like keep control of the ball. And the thing that I think you can improve in terms of handle is ball control. Like I'm not worried about that with Brandon Miller. I I just worry about like, okay, is he more of a shot creator or what? I I don't really know. It's, it's one game, Sam, and like you, I'm glad you mentioned. The, yeah, this this is his first bad game. Yeah, really. Like that's the thing. Like this is this is his first game where he has struggled at all. It's it's one game, and does it reveal some challenges that he's going to have in terms of creating against other high level players? Probably. Does it? Yeah. Again, I, I don't want to jump to too many conclusions here, but I think there's a level of confirmation bias that goes into it, right? All of us know from watching him play AAU basketball and the uh, pre-Alabama stuff, what some of the complaints were going to be about separation and finishing and getting to the basket. The first time we see it pop up again on a college basketball floor, it can't just be a, hey, I told you so, this is going to be a huge problem forever, drop them down your draft board. No, that's that's an overreaction. It's one game out of many. It, that's why I'm so glad you mentioned third game in four days, tired legs. Like He is predominantly a shooter right now. That's the best thing that he's providing to this Alabama team is the ability to shoot the basketball from outside of 15 feet. And on a night like this, when your legs are tired and the shot's not falling, he's not going to be holding up as well as other top-tier prospects. He's just he's yeah. not going to right now. That doesn't right mean now. the ceiling's not there. Yeah. Right. That's right. right. Totally. Okay. Let's go to Duke now. Cause I, I'm actually way more worried about Duke based yes. off of what we've seen so far. Oh yeah. And Duke went to the finals of their thing and North Carolina lost two games. Uh, I, I'm way more worried about what I've seen from Duke. Duke is the biggest part of the Duke equation this year was going to be them getting everything that they could from their elite level freshmen, right? Derek Lively, Derek Whitehead, Kyle Filipowski. So far they've gone one for three in terms of those freshmen, like living up to standard and it's Kyle Filipowski. Who's been great. Now the thing with Lively and Whitehead is that they were hurt to start the year and they missed a good amount of time, especially Derek Whitehead in the preseason. And I think that you can especially see with Derek 
as he's trying to get the shot back, right? Because he had, uh, what was it, a foot injury, right? Yes. Yep. It was his foot. Yeah. And a lot of the times, like obviously your feet bear everything in terms of weight across your body. It can be a struggle to get your shooting mechanics and like your weight distribution back, uh, weight transfer back as you come back from a foot injury, an ankle injury, everything like that. So I think that Dariq, as he gets farther and farther away from that, will be fine. I I'm very worried about Derek Lively. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. What, what have you seen from Derek Lively so far? Because uh, I, 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 typically, I think you're going to be a little bit more positive on this than I am. I'm a little. I'm like pretty worried about Derek Lively. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a benefit of the doubt guy. Uh, that's just kind of my nature. Try, trying to be a little bit more glass half full here. Like it's not been pretty. No doubt about it. He's not shooting the ball confidently and. It, that is not the biggest issue when you're seven foot one and you should be able to impact plays around the rim on the offensive side of the floor. But I also don't think that Duke has a lot of guard play that knows how to get the ball to him in a lot of easy situations. Like his offense is predicated on screening, rolling, and being able to finish near the basket when he's open. Tyrese Proctor, for as good of a passer as he is, is very cerebral at getting corner shooters open when he sees someone help or overhelp by a half step off of those areas. He's not great at finding ways to gift wrap bunnies to a, a rim rolling big like Lively. And I think that that's been a challenge for him a little bit on the offensive end of the floor. Where does he fit in when he's not confident in the shot and there isn't a ton of guard play that's going to be able to get him easy baskets? But he's not he's not defending to the level that we thought that he'd be either, Sam. And that's been, I think, a frustration to all of this, too. Like, I'll I'll let you have your thoughts here for a second. I want to talk afterwards about just Duke's general lineup construction and roster fit for all of these guys, because I think that that factors into this entire equation. Uh, But when you're a a non-stretch big playing essentially a lineup with a non-shooting guard and Proctor and two other bigs in Filipowski and Mitchell out there, it's going to be really hard for you to fit in unless you know what your bread and butter is. And, and at the very least, Duke has a bread and butter in Ryan Young that they can just throw the ball to on the block and he can get to his right hook if he needs to. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up Ryan Young. Um, Ryan Young has not been bad so far. Like he's been a perfectly serviceable big. The fact that Derek Lively is not a better option for Duke to have out there than Ryan Young kind of speaks volumes about where this is. Um, And that's not a shot at Ryan Young. Like Ryan Young is who he is. He's been effective so far in the role to an extent, but like effective for Ryan Young is averaging what, like, I mean, he's got to be at like six points a game. He's at eight points per game right now. He's rebounding. He's getting seven rebounds a night. But like the expectation level here is is what it is. And for Derek Lively to not be able to beat out Ryan Young averaging eight points and seven rebounds a night says a lot, kind of. And, And like you mentioned the idea that the guards don't know where to get him the ball. And I don't totally disagree with that. I think that they miss him on rolls to the rim pretty regularly. Um, There are moments where they could hit him for lobs. More than that, though, I'm worried that like, he doesn't really understand spacing and like, doesn't like, 
understand where to roll. Like, and part of this could just be like offense, right? Uh, integrating new pieces into the offense. Duke has had a lot of guys coming in and out of the lineups and it could be a little bit disjointed. Obviously young guards, Jeremy Roach accepted there. Jeremy Roach just kind of is who he is though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tyrese Proctor is running the point a lot of the time. He's a freshman. You know, like I said, Derek Whitehead's coming in and out of the lineup back in now, hopefully for the long haul. There's plenty of reasons why this would be, you, you would see some, messiness from duke right but like there was a moment in at the start of this first half where like Derek lively like went up and set a ball screen and tyrese proctor or someone threw like an entry pass to kyle filipowski and then Derek lively like pseudo rolled and like almost like tried to set a screen on a post up for kyle filipowski Mm -hmm. and i was like Wait, what are you doing? Yeah, he had the the Ricky Bobby, I don't know what to do with my hands moment. Yeah. 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 And it, that's the kind of stuff that gives me pause when Derek Lively is out there. Because like for Duke to make those lineups work, where we are talking about situations where they just like don't have much spacing on, out on the court with Tyrese Proctor, who's kind of a non-shooter right now, and Mark Mitchell, who's not really a great shooter. Uh, teams do tend to leave Kyle Filipowski out there as well. Like they haven't totally figured out they need to guard him out there at this point. Um, it, you need your spacing to be perfect from your bigs in those circumstances. And Derek Lively's is not. And he also, this is before we get to the defensive end where he's just struggling to stay on the court because of fouls. Like he fouled out of this game in, I mean, how many minutes did did he play tonight? Let's take a look. I got it up right now. He played 22. Uh, 22. He got got to 22 tonight before fouling out. But like he really is, it seems to be struggling with contesting without fouling. He fouled out of the Delaware game. He had four fouls in 21 minutes in the Kansas game. He had four, or no, he had, um, he had one foul in the Kansas game. I'm sorry. He fouled out of the Delaware game. Um, he had a couple of fouls in 14 minutes in the, uh, what was it? It was like South Carolina upstate. Is that who they played in the first game? Mm-hmm. But it, it just seems like, and then against Oregon state, he played 10 minutes because it just seemed like they weren't good with him out there. Yep. Uh, and part of it is that I think he doesn't really have great uh, mechanics for playing without fouling at this point and for uh, consistently being in the right position uh, in his drop coverage or consistently being in the right spot when they're in that zone. And he needs to do anything other than just like get a body on a posting pick. All right. You're ready for me to be the, the optimist again here. I'd love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Look, it's like we're six games into the season. Derek Lively has an incredible amount of tools. He missed some time in the preseason. There are all these reasons Mm -hmm. that there could be problems right now. And I I think that we absolutely should give Derek Lively the benefit of the doubt based on that. Yep. But there, I'm just saying there are flags here that are very concerning. They are real and I am not trying to ignore them. Um, but I think that Zach Eady is a dominant post player in college basketball who knows and, and has a team around him that knows exactly how to utilize that. And that was the he, issue tonight. He dominated not just lively, but any Duke big man that they tried to throw at him in there. Uh, he was he was an absolute monster. And, and 
And that doesn't solve all of the other positional issues that Lively has or, or the issues that he had against Oregon State because they were real. Um, but I, I think that there's something to be said for just how good Purdue was in today's game. The, the other portion of this, yeah. the other portion of this with Lively is we're talking about kind of you know, rolling into Filipowski during his post up. When you are a screen and roll big and you're a lob threat in the way that Lively is in a vacuum, you need to play in a four around one system. You need to play with four shooters around you, set a pick, yeah. dive to the basket. Don't worry about who's posting up near you, what other guys are around. It's a very simple game for Lively. That translates much better to the NBA than it does to college when he's playing minutes with Jeremy Roach and Jalen Blakes. Blakes, I love his defense, but not giving them much in the half court offensively. Oh, no, he he can't play offensively. And then Filipowski and Mitchell, like Mitchell, they're daring both guys to shoot. Filipowski, and I know we'll talk about him a little bit today, like he went, he had two three-pointers today. The rest of Duke's team was 0 of 15. 0 of 15. So even if Lively does roll to the right area or try to position himself down there, there's going to be no space for any guard to drive into the lane and produce anything for him. So I'm not as worried about the offensive stuff because I think that it's going to be able to have some sort of translation to the next level much better than what we're seeing with this Duke roster. But he's got to learn, you're 100% right, how to defend without fouling, I think we need a little bit larger sample size than what we saw just against Purdue because Zach Eady is that damn good. Yeah, and Zach Eady is a monster. Like he basically like single-handedly fouled out Lively. He fouled out Filipowski. Uh, I think Ryan Young had three fouls in this game. Like, look, Zach Eady is an absolute monster to deal with. Uh, he had 21 points and 12 rebounds. He had, let's see here, 23 and 7 against Gonzaga. He had 24 and 12 against West Virginia. He was very clearly the most dominant college basketball player at out of the 16 teams that were at PK 85, whatever we're calling this thing. Um, he has been by, he has been the best player in college basketball this year to me. I don't even really think it's all that close. Uh, in the six games that Purdue has played, he has four 2010 games. He he's a monster to deal with. Yep. Look, if you want to learn more about Zach Eady, go watch the video over on the YouTube channel I did with Zach Eady, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Fasini. Eady is so good at explaining the fundamentals, the techniques he uses as a post-up threat. He's phenomenal. I'm an enormous fan. I, I'm just saying though, like for instance, like we saw against Xavier, like it didn't go much better for Derek Lively against Xavier. It did. It went worse for Derek Lively against Oregon State. Uh, Xavier has bigs. Like Xavier has Jack Nunji and uh, Zach Fremantle. Oregon State doesn't. Like we're at the point where the like not a red flag. Like the red light is beeping and like mm-hmm. blinking for Derek Lively at this point. Well, let's be positive. Let's talk about Kyle Filipowski now. Yes. Filipowski looks awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it's very funny because I loved Kyle Filipowski coming into the year after seeing him uh, in the Boston area, you know, prep school. I saw a guy that could really handle, could really shoot it. These are the kind of guys that I think are super successful college basketball players. And then I heard like the similar things that John Gavoni wrote in, uh, Got a lot of shit for from Duke fans, like that Filipowski didn't look all that awesome during preseason workouts. And 
that it was going to be a bit of a process. He has hit the ground running. He is a dude. He is fearless. He is super skilled. That guy is fucking awesome. I love Kyle Filipowski. um, You stole the word from me there, Sam. It's fearless. Like that's just the way that he plays. And he looks around at the situation going on with this Duke team. And he has a versatile enough game on the offensive end of the floor because he can shoot it, can put the ball on the floor and make solid decisions. He's a, a able to post up some guys that he can have a size advantage on, just makes fundamental plays all over the place. He looks at who he's on the floor with and what the team needs and says, all right, I'm just going to go do that. I'm going to accomplish what we need to accomplish right now. Puts his head down and drives on guys, wants the ball and wants the pressure in those late clock or late game situations. Like he has been much, not just more well-rounded, but he's got – cojones on the offensive end of the oh, floor. totally like he's he he is balling out and he he's been awesome to watch 14 and 5 today uh love seeing mismatch forwards who can do a lot of different things i think that bodes well for the nba level just in terms of future projection but right now yeah. like he is the saving grace for this duke team he is the reason why they are going to be able to win a few games like it, he he's kept them together while lively and whitehead are dealing with their issues and Shire is trying to figure out what buttons to press and who to integrate where uh, in their absence. The, the other big thing that happened today, if you're looking positively with Duke is that Tyrese Proctor looked much better, looked much more yeah. comfortable, had three assists to one turnover, had the 16 points, really get, did a great job getting into the mid range area, did a great job pushing the pace, pushing the tempo. Um, if he can be a guy like that can genuinely pair with Jeremy Roach in the backcourt and can handle a lot of possessions, it does really change things for Duke. Having said that, he was averaging five points and five rebounds on 24% shooting coming into this game. So he needs to figure it out. But if he does and he plays like this the rest of the year, except as opposed to the guy that he was in the first five or six games that Duke played, that changes things for Duke in a very substantial way that will allow them to get into their offense a bit easier and to create easier opportunities, both in transition and in the half court. Look, talent wins out at the end of the day. And this is an immensely talented team that they need to figure out ways to, to mesh, to get guys healthy and all on the same page in different areas. The one common theme that they don't have is, is three point shooting. Uh, They play really big they don't have guards that can space the floor. Like they're a team that, based on their talent, we can be looking back at this two, three months from now and thinking, what an overreaction. This was just a team that didn't have the early season uh, coming together period because of injuries, because of young guys, because of in- reintegrating, you know, older transfers. Uh, they just, they never yeah. really gelled that early. Or we could be looking at this a couple months from now and saying, Man, this is a hero game from Kyle Filipowski. A couple, you know, low major wins and Jeremy Roche hitting enough turnaround jumpers against Xavier away from being a, a disaster start to the season. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about here in the probably really in the PK Invitational tournament is Purdue. Matt Painter has built essentially a perfect team around Zach Eady. He has shooters and guys like Fletcher Lawyer. Uh, I think Braden Smith can shoot at the very least. Ethan Morton can shoot. Mason Gillis can knock down shots off the catch. 
he has built a group of totally unselfish guys who can really move the ball and swing it around the perimeter with ease in guys like Lawyer, Smith, Morton, Gillis, Newman. He has like an off the bench dynamic guard that you need in like the fifth year, sixth year senior in David Jenkins. Is Caleb first a guy that can slide down to the five and allow you to take Zach Eady off the court defensively if you have to at some point? They haven't had to take Eady off the court defensively yet this year, but if that does happen at some point, they have first and they have Trey Kaufman Wren to be able to yep. take the uh, take the air out of teams defensively if they have to. It, it's just kind of a perfectly built team. It, th- this is a phenomenally built roster by Matt Painter, and it is the antithesis of everything Duke is. Duke is a bunch of really, really talented dudes where you really try and figure out how it's going to work. Purdue is a bunch of guys that are under-recruited, and Matt just knows that those guys fit his scheme to perfection, and he will be able to make it work with them. It's just a fascinating contrast in roster-building styles. Very much so, and and you had mentioned how smart they're built around Zach Eady. They have a bunch of smart players that are on the floor that know how to cut, how to move, what shots to take, which ones not to, when and how to feed the post. Like I feel like old man yelling at the clouds, but post-entry passing is a lost art, and they're great at it. You know, Ethan Morton, who kind of plays the three for them, functioned a lot as a point guard in high school. I know a lot of these high-level players that, that come from their high school teams play with the ball in their hands a ton, but he was a, a really, really good passer in high school. So to see all of this come together and just be a really, really well-rounded group I don't know why it, it, like it shouldn't be a surprise to me because Painter does this often and his teams are always really competitive and outpunch their weight. Uh, but this one could be a little, a little bit more special than I, I think a lot of people predicted coming into the season because Edie is playing, like you said, the best player in the country and they don't make mental mistakes around him. Oh, Ethan Morton, Pittsburgher. First and foremost, Butler so we High love School. him here. Of course, he's smart. Of course, he can pass. Of course, he defends. He's great rotationally, defensively. Just a smart player. Gotta love that Pittsburgh basketball education. That's right, baby. That's really all I've got. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like Zach, here's the other thing. We should talk about Zach Ed as well. Like even in the context of being the centerpiece here, he's really improved as a passer. I think he's really improved defensively. He's always been able to like just catch and dominate on the block and establish his position because he's super physical, but it's the rest of everything now that he brings to the table as a passer, as a defender, doesn't get like completely obliterated away from the rim anymore. They're playing full drop. They are basically daring teams to beat them from the mid range, thinking that they can outmath other teams by getting shots at the rim or shots from behind the three point line. It's just all really, really smart in the way that they've built around Zach Eady to make this work. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break. I don't know. What do you want to talk about next, Adam? Oh, um, do we want to go to Maui? Let's go to Maui. Let's yeah. do that. Okay. We'll be right back and we'll talk about the Maui Invitational. Okay, 
We're back. We're talking the Maui Invitational. And I think we have to start with Arizona. If we're going to talk Maui Invitational. Yeah. Arizona wins the Maui Invitational. They were the best team, like very clearly at that tournament. I thought like it wasn't even a question. Um, what are your thoughts on the Arizona Wildcats? Because I certainly have some, but I want to get you involved here. Sure. Uh, just love if we're not just talking roster construction, but identity. I love the way that this team works within what Tommy Lloyd does and what he brought with him from Gonzaga, because it reminds me a lot of some of their the dominant Gonzaga teams that they've had where you've got two bigs that are high-lowing each other to death, rim-running and just obliterating the paint in a lot of different ways. Guards who are becoming really smart with when and how to pick their spots that all shoot it and all can kind of move, make decisions off ball screens and handoffs. And they're aware of who they are and need to be defensively. I thought that their kind of defensive game plans and strategies as it, from a team standpoint in Maui were excellent. And the synergy that they have of just enough talent and depth to continue to throw at teams on the offensive end, identity to throw the ball inside, and being smart with their defensive coverages when they play two bigs is really, really impactful. Yeah, I I think that they are phenomenal, particularly on the offensive end. I I think that that's where I want to start. So they really just truly kind of bludgeon teams on the offensive end, like they – really are able to throw the ball on the block to either Tubelis or Umar Balo. The the long-awaited four-year Umar Balo breakout is upon us, Spins. It, it took a while, but here we are. The thing that they do super well, though, is they have multiple ball handlers out there at all times, and they push. They constantly yes. push in transition. This is something that Mark Few and Gonzaga have done for years. And it's something that Tommy Lloyd has taken with him to Gonzaga. And he asks his bigs to run. I think that mm-hmm. is the most important part of this. Guys like Umar Balo, Ajolis Tabellis, they run the floor. And even if they don't immediately get the dish from someone like Kirk Risa or Pele Larson or Courtney Ramey, they go and establish position on the block so deep and so early that it then creates a very easy early offense opportunity uh, to be able to get an easy shot. So I, I just think so, so positively about what Tommy Lloyd has done. Even beyond that, like just the like shit that they run, it's just so smart. Like they're so well-spaced all the time. And, and there's so many creative screening actions that they run. There are so many ways that they try and create mismatch opportunities for their bigs or try and create mismatch opportunities for their guards in space. I love every single thing about how Tommy Lloyd has built that roster. And he's found undervalued players. Like I think the Henri Vesar kid, the, awesome. the like 18 year old center, he's going to be, really be phenomenal. Yeah. That kid's going to be really, really good. Like you can see already the flashes and the signs that he gives in like 10 minutes a night. He's going to be so good. And they develop guys. That's the other thing here. Yes. Like look at where Umar Balo was in his freshman year at Gonzaga, sophomore year at Gonzaga with Tommy, by the way. Um, then last year he could get on the court a little bit. Wasn't super valuable, but was fine. And then this year he came and he was ready to go. Just from the jump, he's been ready to go and be one of the most dominant players within the entirety of college basketball so far. I I love everything that Arizona is about, point blank. 
you mentioned development too. I think Kirk Carissa has taken a big step forward with the ball in his hands. You know, last year he was much more of just a a shooter floor spacer. Like Matherin was going to be a little bit more of their preferred secondary creator in a lot of instances. Now Carissa is pushing the ball in transition, making really good decisions out of the pick and roll. And he's finishing. He's getting to the basket a little bit more. He's got a, a nifty little kind of floater, like extended layup package, but he's driving a little bit more confidently. And that makes all the difference to this offense working is having guards who you fear can take you off the bounce because that's what's going to open up perimeter jump shots just as much as dumping it into the post and having teams double down and, and kicking it out of there. Uh, it's They're just so well-rounded on the offensive end of the floor. Like Courtney Ramey has been great for them. I, they're really, really good. Court, really good. Courtney Ramey, I don't know if you saw me tweet this, but Courtney Ramey had 17 points in two games all year. At Texas last year, he had 17 points and plus in both of his first games at Arizona after sitting out with that three game suspension. So his first games were Maui and it worked perfect. Right. Uh, I'm glad you brought. You there, Adam? I'm there. Are you there? We're back. Okay. We're back. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Kirk Creasa though. Yeah. Kirk Creasa to me is the most improved guard I've seen in college basketball this season, for sure. Uh, His ability to play off of a live dribble, both as a passing playmaker and as a scorer who can score from all three levels is phenomenal. He is a threat constantly to either pass or score once he gets under the rim, once he gets into the mid-range area, or to pull up from three. He's actually like a great pull-up shooter now, which is incredibly dangerous. Like He's shooting 51% from three so far this year and shooting 90% from the line. And I think it's going in every time he shoots. Like I I don't think this is like a fluke. When he shoots, especially going to his left on that pull-up out of a ball screen if someone goes under or if someone has to like take a super wide angle uh, trying to go around the screen high, I think it's curtains every single time, every single time he shoots the ball. Uh, I think that, look, I had him in my top 100 uh, prospect rankings that I released. I think I might be too low. I think I had him in the 90s or something. He looks like one of the most effective guards in college basketball this season, point blank. He's playing really, really well. Uh, And it reminds me a little bit more of some of the pre-Arizona film that he had when he was playing in Estonia uh, for their national program. Like He was more than just a shooter. And he's gotten more confident. He's gotten his bounce back. He looks a little bit more lively when he's putting the ball on the floor. He's he's a tremendous player. This Arizona coaching staff starts at the top with Tommy Lloyd. Year-over-year development, the way that they get the most out of their guys – you win in college basketball by being old. And when you get guys who are talented when they're young, who are patient, who buy into what you're doing and keep getting better, that's how you stay old. And that's how you stay always being really good. I just, I I love everything about this Arizona team. Well, and here's the other thing too. It's clear that they, well, a, that staff is unbelievable, first and foremost. Like, it is just a ridiculous staff. Like, you have Jack Murphy, Steve Robinson, who are like both veteran coaches, have been in college basketball forever, absolutely know how to recruit. They know how to get the most out of guys. It's, it's a really, really good start there. Then you have Ricardo Foyce, who 
at Gonzaga and, and, you know, as a trainer for NBA players, has long been renowned, uh, is one of the best development guys in the league. You have guys like TJ Benson, you have guys like Rem Bacamus, like on the support staff that are assistant coach quality guys. Like they, they would be assistants anywhere in the country other than Arizona. And they're just like on the support staff there. It, it's just top to bottom. It's a loaded coaching staff that clearly does a phenomenal job with this group. And on top of it, then you also just have talent evaluation skills that are phenomenal. Like knowing that Henri Vesar is going to hit for you in the way that he did. I know that he was like a top 50 recruit, right? But like having the relationships and then knowing that you're not getting taken for a ride on like the big seven foot Estonian kid, right? Like that that's a big part of being able to evaluate and knowing that someone like Cedric Henderson, who was a guy that was all big South, but was not on any of the transfer lists, right? Wasn't on ours like that. I did wasn't on. Um, I, I don't think any of them that rank out to a hundred knowing that Cedric Henderson is going to come in and play the exact role that you want him to play after multiple years at Campbell, it's huge, right? Being able to evaluate what guys fit for you in what way is so critical. I will ask you this question though. Who is the best prospect on Arizona? Thank you for, yeah, that's, that's very kind of you to ask me that very, very difficult question there, Sam. Uh, and I go, I go back and forth on this one a lot. And, and I actually put out a Twitter poll earlier this weekend asking that, that exact question. Uh, for a long time, Tabellis was that guy for me because I've, I love his feel. I love the way that he plays on the offensive end of the floor. But I worry about the defensive side. There were a lot of times last year when he got played off the floor in certain matchups. And I'm not sure how I feel about that uh, existing throughout the next several months without really seeing much change. Like he hasn't been punished in a lot of those ways yet. And part of that is just Arizona has out schemed people to start the season. I might, I might go with, with Creesa right now uh, as, as their best pro prospect. They've just got a whole glutton of guys that I think are all very similar in terms of where I would give them a look and where I would take them. Like long-term it's, it's probably going to be Visar for me. But I think right now, based on what we're seeing, it's it's Creesa. I think I might go Pele Larson. Hmm. Six foot five, can shoot, good physical frame. I think he actually holds up defensively reasonably well. Um, Courtney Ramey, by the way, is probably going to average like 15 points, be borderline Pac-12 all defense, okay. like shoot 40% from three. He turns 24 before the start of next NBA season, but like, I don't know, man. Like Courtney Ramey, I think looks pretty okay. Yeah. Like, I don't think he's an NBA player necessarily, but like, it's just hard for guys that are six foot three to like play that role in the NBA. But I think I would go Pele Larson. He can handle the ball on ball screens. He can really, really shoot it. 40% three point shooter. Um, and I think he holds up defensively a little bit better than what he gets credit for at six foot five. So I guess that'd be my pick, but it, it's just a loaded roster uh, of like, great college players that will play professionally. It's just whether or not they're going to play in the NBA. Well, let's go to a team that they actually didn't get to play 
in Maui next. Let's go to Arkansas. Arkansas was the team that I think made the most headlines throughout Maui, if only because Eric Musselman was uh, very angry at the officials constantly uh, throughout that entire event, and rightfully so. I I thought the Creighton got a horrible whistle in that game against Creighton. I I thought it was just like absolutely terrible. But the big thing that's worth talking about is Anthony Black. Yeah, Anthony Black looks absolutely great right now. Uh, I don't know how much of it translates to the NBA yet, but Anthony Black looks absolutely terrific for Arkansas, and I could not be more excited to see this team once they get Nick Smith back. I think this is one of the 10 best teams I've seen in college basketball so far this year. Once you account for the fact that they're also going to get back Nick Smith, the ceiling is even higher. Yeah, so let's start on Black here for a moment. Uh, he just yeah. kind of flipped the switch when he got to Maui. Like, I, I don't know what happened. But he started scoring the damn basketball, shooting it with confidence. It, it wasn't consistent throughout the whole weekend. He dropped off by game number three out there. But definitely, you know, back-to-back 26.6 assist games, he plays yep. really pressuring style of defense on the perimeter and is really willing and able to get into the basketball which when he's what six foot seven with decent length like that, that's going to be very disruptive at the point of attack. Uh, he looks much more confident this week from what we saw than he did anything prior to the start of the basketball season on the offensive end in trusting his ability to create. He's converting when he gets to the basket. He's got really good touch. Like he's good. He's a very, very good player, and it might be more than just a connector piece, a big guard who knows how to facilitate and can defend if he can just consistently shoot it. Like, it's kind of a two-game stretch. I want to see a lot more, but really, really positive. Yeah, the the shooting is where I fall apart on Anthony Black a little bit. I have no idea. But the defense is really high level. He's a very good pressure guard defensively. Uh, offensively, his ability to just drive transition play off of the glass because he's so big, he's a really good rebounder and ability to just get it out there and go. More than that, though, like he's beating guys off the bounce in the half court now. Yeah, he is. Like earlier on in his career, I was like, yeah, does he have like a great first step? Like, is he a super athlete? I don't know if he's a super athlete, but the fact that he's so long and he's able to like just get that initial burst of length and like first step past his man. I don't know. Like it's given me more pause in thinking like, Hey, maybe he can play like real lead guard in the NBA on the ball with his passing ability, with his ability to just put pressure on the rim. He's a really good finisher. Once he gets to the basket, like, I don't know. I I really was really, really impressed with Anthony black in Maui. I, I think he's the guy in terms of like NBA upside that helped himself the most this weekend. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely the case there. And like another Arkansas Razorback who's continued to to show pretty well this year has been Trevon Brazil. I mean, we've we've talked about him a couple times yeah. here on the podcast. He's starting to shoot the ball confidently and consistently from three. And when you're as athletic as he is, and you can slide down and play some minutes at the four, that's huge. It's huge for Arkansas long term. It's part of what's going to make them super super fun because now you've got a guy who's putting defenders on posters while also stretching the floor out to three and making solid decisions when he attacks closeouts. Uh, I really like Brazil, but you know, Black is the headliner for how he's played out there in Maui, and, and he and Nick Smith 
just the the complementary nature of their games is what's going to make Arkansas really fun the rest of the way once Smith gets back. Because I think those two playing off of each other, particularly if Black is willing to shoot, catch, and shoot threes, it's going to be really just give me give me more of that, please. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I'm glad you brought up Brazil because he's shooting 42% from three, taking four of them a game so far. Uh, the shot looks pretty good. He's obviously putting guys on posters. I think defensively there are some real, like, def- I don't even want to go as far as, like, to say deficiencies. I think that he doesn't really know, like, how to play, like, within the gap in ball screens, for instance. Like, it, it's it's a lot of detail stuff for Trevon where I'm, I get held up a little bit, but all of the skill, like six foot 10 big man can step out and shoot, can finish above anyone uh, at the basket with the thunderous dunk. He's got a real, real shot. The other guy who didn't really do much in terms of production, but I thought was very impressive despite the fact that I think he scored 19 points in three games was Jordan Walsh. Jordan Walsh, I thought he played one of the best defensive games I've seen a perimeter player play all season against Creighton. I thought he was absolutely incredible providing pressure on the ball against guys like Trey Alexander, against guys like Baylor Shireman. He really caused them a ton of issues consistently. He uh, he does not have an off switch, Sam. When that guy no. is on the floor, he is going balls to the wall. He is pressuring people, getting into the ball, trying to rebound everything that he can. And like every time he catches on the offensive end, I feel like he's going to break something. Like he just bounces it once or twice, really hard. Doesn't really go much of anywhere. But just the aggression that he plays with, it's constant energy for this Arkansas team. And I think that as a a guy who has some questions about his fit in terms of half court offense, like just come in and play with energy and everything else will take care of itself. And that's what he's doing. He's controlling what he can control. Yep. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, I don't know. I I, I just like, I I think this Arkansas team is going to be an absolute monster when Nick Smith gets back. Like, I I think that they are a genuine potential top five team uh, in the country. Once Nick yeah. Smith gets back and Ricky Jedi council is starting to knock down shots too. Like that's, that's another guy to add in there just in terms of offensive firepower and spark. Yep. Like he's, he's a big scoring guard who looks pretty comfortable in moments when he has to go out there and create, you talk about black council, Smith Walsh and Brazil as a closing lineup forget all the other depth that they have in their front court. Like if you're going to go with those five guys, that's pretty damn good. Totally agree. Okay, let's get to Creighton now. Uh, Weird tournament for Creighton. They won their first two games, obviously, uh, and then lost to Arizona in what was ostensibly a tight final, but I don't know. It felt like Arizona was in control of it the whole way. Yeah, they were playing for the line the whole time. Yeah. Who is the best prospect on Creighton? Let's start there. Uh, I, I have my thoughts, but I would be interested to hear yours. Yeah, I think it's Trey Alexander. Uh, I, I agree just, with you, actually. Yeah, he yeah. shoots the ball really well. He's very smooth in everything that he does. I don't think he forces any type of decisions. Uh, that you know, He's got to clean up a couple things in terms of just separation, but really, really smart player, very smooth, decent size for a guard. Uh, that, I've been impressed by him. 
I agree with you. I think he's also a pretty terrific on-ball defender yes. as well. Uh, really good with his hands. Really, really good hand-eye coordination. Uh, I also buy him just as like a mid-range shot creator right now, a guy who can get into the paint and kind of buzz in and out. And he loves to like kind of drift toward the baseline to get that little like 14-footer from the baseline where he thinks that he can get open pretty consistently, it feels like. He has that little natural lean on that shot, like fall away. Um yeah, I, I really, really like what I've seen from Trey Alexander. I would have probably considered Ryan Kalkbrenner before Arizona just absolutely obliterated him. Yeah. Like, yep. all sorts of problems there. And honestly, like, he had some issues against Arkansas as well, but he played really, really well against Arkansas. Um Look, Arizona plays like a very pro style in terms of the amount of ball screens they're going to put you in. Um, he really struggled, really, really struggled to deal with ball screens in that game. Uh, I- I've been a Kalkbrenner fan for a while, and I still think he's probably one of the three or four best players in the Big East and like has a real shot to win Big East Player of the Year and, you know, one of the seven best centers in college basketball. But yeah, what Arizona was able to do to him in ball screens was very concerning. Let's and and let's talk about the kind of overall work that Arizona's offense does. When you're guarding a ball screen, you are kind of slower thinking, processing, trying to figure out the right angles. You may stand a little bit more upright and be bigger than you normally would if you are guarding somebody in the post and you need all of the leverage possible. Kalkbrenner is yep. fairly skinny and he got out muscled by any Arizona big that was trying yeah. to Ballo just destroyed him down low. That, that's the thing too. Like I mentioned like ball screens, like that, like Kalkbrenner just not really having a chance in ball screens, but like, I mean, what, what Umar Ballo did to him was even meaner. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it, but there's synergy between that Sam, because when you're standing up, you're thinking more, you're worried about angles on those ball screens then you're going to get ducked in in this Arizona offense, and Ballo is going to yeah. find a way to just punish you physically. So now, next time down the floor, you're more worried about that happening, and you're slightly out of position on the ball screens. It's what Arizona and, and their kind of offense and, and the way that they have so many different threats does to teams. But I agree. like There was something just not great about his performance. I think particularly if we can switch ends of the floor now, Arizona – Essentially, well, sag. You want to wait on that? Let, one? Let, I want to finish about the offense sure. and about Creighton's defense, right? Sure. Um, so, in this game, from like, it was just hilarious. Like, A, I think that Ryan Nemhard is a real, actually, like a really bad defender. Like, uh, Kirk Kreese annihilated him. It, it was actually very bad. Uh, he just consistently blew by him even before he got to like the mesh point of the ball screen and just put Kalkbrenner in such a bad spot all the time. So I do want to acknowledge that. Like, I think that Ryan Nemhard like caused him a lot of issues, but then like you'd get to the point where, okay, Kirk Reese is going to drive by. He's going to get to the lane. He's going to shoot a floater over the top of Kalkbrenner. Okay, great. Because Arizona just lived in the paint in this game, be it Creesa, be it Larson, be it Ramey when he was kind of there. Like, Creesa was so good, particularly at like stopping 
getting a guy on his hip and then forcing Kalkbrenner to come out and then making him commit and then making a pass to Ballo. He made like the crazy behind the back one uh, late in the game where then apparently he went over and yelled at Tommy Lloyd about taking him out of the game based off of what like Twitter was saying he did. Um, That sounded weird. But like it was, it was just so easy. It was like high ball screen, drive, force Kalkbrenner to make a decision. If he commits, pass. If he doesn't commit, score, right? It was just rinse, repeat. And then the next time down, like with four minutes left, Creighton tried like a 1-3-1 one, one zone. Arizona immediately recognizes it, beats them that way, like just gets the short corner pass, gets the pass to Umar Ballo, bang, layup, no problems. Then the next time down, that lasted one possession, the 1-3-1 one, one zone. The next time down, they tried to play Ryan Kalkbrenner flat, like at the level of the ball screen. That didn't work. Uh, not even a little bit. Just escape dribble into a short roll for Balo, who just shoots over the top of the tagger with like a little floater. And then the next time they tried to hard hedge the ball screen with Kalkbrenner, and it was just no chance. Like, uh, no, they actually got a steal. The first time they hard hedged, they got a steal. I'm looking at my notes now. And then immediately Tommy Lloyd called a timeout. And he ran an action where it was like they ran a ghost screen with Pele Larson coming across and then had Ballo come up and set a secondary screen up for Creesa after uh, the ghost screen from Larson. And Creesa, knowing that Kalkbrenner was going to way hedge out on it, then just rejected the ball screen as soon as Kalkbrenner came out and had the wide open lane for the easy drive. It's just that stuff where I'm like, oh, Tommy Lloyd is a stud. Oh, this Arizona team is fucking awesome. But also Creighton had no answers like defensively. And they tried a lot with Ryan Kalkbrenner, who theoretically you can do a lot with because he's mobile enough to do some things with. And there was just no shot. Like, the amount of issues that Ryan Kalkbrenner had with Arizona gave me some real pause. They're just, they're a torture chamber, Sam. Like they're just, they're so, so smart and a well-oiled machine with what they do. Uh, They don't have a weakness on the offensive end of the floor. They just don't. No, it was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous game, an absolutely ridiculous game. Where do you want to go next, Adam? Oh, boy. Well, if we're going to talk about Creighton, I just got to give one quick PSA to all Big East and and every other coach. Please put Arthur Kaluma's pump fake on the scouting report. He doesn't shoot the ball well, yet he pump fakes and people bite on it every time, and it's like the only way he gets offense. Like, just please. He's he's not been great to start the year in a lot of different ways. Um, The offense looks rough, but – Literally, the only thing that that he produces out of is a pump fake that somebody bites on, and now he can get to the rim. That's it. Don't bite on the pump fake. I don't think he's it right now. Uh, It's like a processing issue for him more than even – like he had a knee injury, I think, in the offseason, but it it looks more like – he doesn't ever make the extra pass. He is always just driving like a little bit on, out of control, like into the lane and trying to make things happen that way. I, I don't think that he's like, and look, like I, I didn't even put him in my mock draft before the season started and Creighton fans were like, wait, where is it? Like he should be here. And I was like, 
I don't think that he's really it after having like really jumped into it. He has the tools, like he's six seven, has all has sorts of length, great frame. He just he has a long way to go in terms of like reading the game, seeing the game, and developing the jump shot, which is a real concern as well. Don't bite on the pump fake. But Sam, <laughs> let's stay in the Big East. Can we talk about my Yukon yeah. Huskies for a moment? We should talk about the Huskies. Give me yeah. your Connecticut Huskies take. Because they're <laughs> has their game started yet? I, oh, I know that I know. uh the marathon UNC Alabama game kind of pushed that back. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think I think that's scheduled for later. They got Iowa State tonight, um, so yeah, it is. It's late. It, this, it's not for an hour and a half. And this is pre-Iowa State game for those of you that are listening to this a little bit later. Uh, UConn is deep. UConn is really, really good, and they know who they are. Like all of the pieces seem to fit together really, really well. They've gotten contributions from younger role guys like Donovan Klingon and Alex Caravan, who stepped into mm. the starting lineup can knock down shots. Uh, Klingon being a, another, you know, big man off the bench that can give Adama Sonogo a breather. Sonogo is firing away from deep on pick and pops. And that is a huge development. If he can keep making them at a respectable pace, for this UConn offense. It's not going to be a shot that he takes more than two or maybe three times a game, but it's just another element that you have to prepare for when he's such a dominant scorer in the low post area. Andre Jackson, he has much more space to attack slash be athletic, play in space. He's a good passer, a really good passer, and I feel like they're finding ways to get him the ball in those areas. Tristan Newton, fantastic playmaker. He had just... He's looked really, really good in competent run in the show for this UConn team. And then my guy, Jordan Hawkins, coming in, finally finding his way back into the lineup. He is gunning, folks. Like that guy is pulling from deep without a conscience, and he's making them. We know he's got athletic tools to do a little bit more. But more than anything, this is a team who loves to shoot the ball on offense and plays tough, inspired defense depth, really good players. They're going to be a real problem this year, Sam. Like I, I think that they're a top 10, 15 team in the country. They're really good. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I said like 15 to 20 in the preseason and they look even better than what I thought they were. Great. So could not agree more with you. They, they look great. Uh, it's just a roster that really makes a lot of sense together right. and is super long. They like Andre Jackson's defensive game is nice. unbelievable. He is a beast on that end he is just able to completely take you out of whatever you want to run if he's at the point of attack he's phenomenal defending wings uh, whoever he is on he is going to completely nullify those guys uh jordan hawkins though is the guy that i think looks like an nba player there it, it's the three-point shooting the ability to run around he's not a bad defender either he's pretty athletic uh yeah no this is a real team this is a top 15 team i think you're right sonogo looks great I, I will say, like, I've got a couple of NBA people ask me, like, what's the deal with Donovan Klingon? Um, just in terms of the rim protection, I mean, his ability to completely shut off the paint uh, has been huge for Connecticut in those bench moments this season. And, and phenomenal touch near the basket for Klingon. I watched him a lot when he was playing on the AAU circuit. Like, really, really good touch on the interior. Strong body. He's gotten himself into much better shape to be able to play the up-and-down style of college basketball without losing some of that defensive presence. Just 
all around, like deep, really good, long on the perimeter because Newton has some length to him, like Newton, Hawkins, and Jackson just getting into you while you have backside protection, they're going to be really, really tough. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Uh, let's go to the battle for Atlantis real quick. Uh, Kansas and Tennessee ended up playing in the final. I have not caught the Kansas-Tennessee game, but I caught a few of the games early in the tournament here, particularly uh, let's start with Kansas-NC State. I have no idea how NC State did not read the scouting report on Grady Dick where you have to stop him from shooting, but they let Grady Dick get 12 three-point attempts up in this game. Yeah. Uh, many of them just running off of actions where they didn't close out hard enough. And it's just like, what in the world are we doing? Uh, Grady Dick dropped 25 in that game. Uh, he was not quite as good in their next two games. I caught a good amount of the Wisconsin game. He was just fine there. Um, I think he went three of seven from three, had five uh, rebounds. Overall, I think that's more what we're going to see from Grady Dick. Great awesome games where he just completely goes off from three and then some other games where maybe it's slow. Maybe it's not quite as much of an open court game and he's going to maybe struggle to get completely involved. Dick looks great. I mean, he's, he knows his role, you know, he's going to be out there to space the floor and he's very smart with how and when he attacks. I think Kansas is finding the right ways to include him in the game plan. Uh, He was a monster in that first half against NC State. Just an absolute monster in in that regard. By the way, Dewan Harris, most underrated player in the country. Just going to go out there and say it. Like, really, really good on the defensive end of the floor. Sets things up for them, runs the show, steadies them. The emotional heartbeat on a very, very good team. Uh, Kansas is good. Kansas is fun. But it all stems from Grady Dick being able to knock down shots, space the floor in a way that opens up everything else for for their drivers. Yeah, and Jalen Wilson continues to just be – like one of the best players in the country. He had 29 in the game against Wisconsin. He had 19 (laughs) against NC state. Uh, Looks great. Uh, Looks like probably, you know, a very real candidate for big 12 player of the year. Uh, I will say one guy that's been like, I don't want to say like a total disappointment, but Terquavion Smith hasn't really gotten it going yet in the way that I think we were hoping. Uh, He had 11 against Dayton. I watched the Dayton. uh, So I watched two of NC State's games. I watched the Kansas game. Then I watched the Dayton NC State game where they won. Like, don't get me wrong, but they won because Jarkel Joyner just like couldn't stay out of the paint and they couldn't stop fouling him, essentially. Uh, I I would like to see Terquavion really start to get rolling here from three. He's shooting 32% from three right now. We know how good he is as a pull-up scorer. He's shooting better from two-point range. He looks to have really improved his finishing craft, and I think as soon as the shooting picks back up to the level that we know it can be at, it'll probably be okay. But I think this shows how small the margins are for Terquavion Smith. Like He has to be a 40% three-point shooter. That's his track to the NBA. Has to be like an elite-level pull-up weapon who shoots 40% from three. If you're going to have the long offensive leash that he does, you've got to be consistent and you've got to be efficient. It's just there's there's no two ways around it. There are too many guys that can really score it in the backcourt nowadays uh, to, to just give the ball to somebody in the NBA level who can't do that consistently and efficiently. So 
Uh, yeah. it, you know, time will tell and bear that out. I'm, I'm not panicked anyway with Serquavion. And I think that ACC this year is going to be a, a really good test for him because there's some, some good teams in there that, uh, that he's going to need to carry NC State to victory against. The team that has been really disappointing to me so far is Dayton. And Dayton is a team that has multiple potential pros on this team. We all know Deron Holmes, who's been really good so far, like no real complaints about what he's been able to do for Dayton. The guards have been terrible to this point. Uh, But you have Tamani Kamara, who has been a rebounding force. You have uh, Mongolian Mike Sheravjomst, who has been phenomenal as a freshman. He's shooting 44% from three, uh, has a 59 true shooting percentage, six foot eight guy that like sometimes handles the ball for them. Like really, really important, impactful player for Dayton. But like, this is a team now that's now lost to UNLV, Wisconsin, NC state and BYU. And I thought this was going to be a borderline top 25 team this year. And any top 40 team that they've, or no, I'm sorry, top hundred team that they've played, they've lost to at this point. Like, I think that it just might not be uh, enough. And I, I think frankly, like, do you remember when we watched Dayton, when they had Obi Toppin and Jalen Crutcher and even like guys like Ryan Mikesell and Ibby Watson and Rodney Chapman and Trey Landers and all those guys, right? Landers, yeah. They had a lot of ball handling out there. They had a lot of, um, you know, playmaking, a lot of shooting, ultimately had like the great rim runner in Obi Toppin. But they were playing a super attractive brand of basketball. They played pro style, like they were getting up and down the floor. This team is a chore to watch. Like they do not play anything resembling an attractive brand of basketball. They're, the brand of basketball they're playing is ugly right now. And I don't know like if it's coaching, I don't know if it's just, you know, I don't know what it is, but their offense is a mess in a way that you would not have expected, you know, a couple of years ago when Dayton had like the best offense in the country and had like a glorious, glorious looking fun aesthetic style under Anthony Grant. Uh, and, And here's the thing too, like you go back through Anthony Grant's coaching history, Anthony Grant is been a head coach now for, you know, what, three years at VCU and then six or seven at Alabama and six or seven at Dayton. Now we have like a 15 year track record. His year where they finished second in scoring at Dayton, according to Kempom, that is one of two years that they have been even in the top 50 in scoring. It looks like. So this isn't like a new thing for Anthony Grant teams. They need to run like a very real, wide open, well-spaced offense. They have the roster to do it, especially with Sheriff Jumps being ready to go as a floor spacer. Like Mike, Omzil, you know, Tamani Kamara can handle the ball away from the basket, even if he can't really shoot. Malachi Smith, Kobe Elvis. I know that Kobe Brea has been out for a little while now. Like he can also really shoot. They have the shooters. They theoretically have the playmakers. Like you should be running like five out or four around one with Deron Holmes. Like you should be really uh, setting the world on fire on offense. And right now, according to Ken Palm, they're a hundred and second in offense, which is just not good enough. 
Folks, his name is Sam Vicini, and thank you for coming to his TED Talk. I need Dayton to be better on offense. This is where yeah. I'm at. And it's because we love what uh, what Holmes does on the inside. Like, Theron Holmes is an awesome defender, and he's got some offensive tools. We want to be able to see that and utilize it more. Uh, like, I haven't watched Dayton over the last week. I didn't catch any of their games down there, so hard for me to really weigh in on some of the discussion. But, like, I love the individual pieces that they have on this roster, particularly knowing that they're young and the ceiling is really high for them to continue to get better. But they've they've lost a bunch of games that they probably should have won a few of them at least, and that's going to make it really hard for them to punch a, an at large berth for the NCAA tournament down the road. Yeah, no, I think that's dead on. Uh, do you have any other any other places you want to go before we get out of here, uh, Adam? I don't think we want to do Tank Watch. We kind yeah. of both talked about prospects that we wanted to talk about for prospects of the week. I, I don't know. I think we. Do you have anyone else you need to talk about? Yeah, I don't know if there's anything mentioning with Slapgate up there in Syracuse, but uh, a rare feisty moment oh, from Judah. Judah Mintz. Yeah, that was something. Oh, my gosh. Judah Mintz. Doug Eddard ran for his life <laughs> after he slapped Judah Mintz in the back of the head. That man That man knew that there were problems if he didn't run away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a business oh. decision on his end, Sam. Business decision from Doug Eddard. Gotta love it. Uh the one thing I do want to talk about just very quickly to close here. It's been a really fun, competitive, exciting year in college basketball. I, I like, I had some questions coming in cause I was worried about the talent being down a little bit, but it's clear that college basketball has a lot of like older players at this point from the COVID year that some guys are getting and, from guys just sticking around because of NIL opportunities. The play this year in college basketball, I think has actually been really good. I think it's been really positive. I think it's been really exciting. It's been other than UNC Alabama today, uh, a very attractive brand of basketball for the most part. Like, I I think that a lot of these teams executed a really high level. Like the teams that I've just like flat out, like we didn't talk about Houston really at all. Um, Love Houston. Yeah. Like Houston got into a hideous game yesterday with Kent state. Kent State. Uh, like Kent state shot, I think like 25% from the field and almost won in that game. Um, Houston, has the best defense in the country and they have multiple pros. They play a great brand of basketball. Uh, Tennessee has been really fun. I know that they lost to Colorado, but they've been really, really good. Uh, Virginia has been phenomenal this season. I think Baylor is still one of the five best teams in the country. Probably if you made me rank them right now, Uh, I know that they lost to Virginia, but Virginia is really, really good. Arizona plays maybe the most attractive brand of basketball. We talked to, about Connecticut earlier. They're great. I said earlier uh, on a show, I think with you, not with uh, Mark, that I think uh, Illinois is like the oh, most fun yeah. team among yeah. the high majors to watch. Illinois plays an incredible brand of basketball. Uh, Creighton has a lot of older guys that's re- that are really fun to watch. Arkansas is like super athletic, super enjoyable to watch. 
Maryland has been sneaky fun to watch. Like you can go down the list. You can get into the mid majors. I've talked a lot about Pepperdine being really fun to watch, right? Like this is a great college basketball season. This is not just a good college basketball season. This has been a great start to the college basketball season. And it's because of the way teams are playing because of the veterans. I think that exist on some of these teams, but also because we're getting a lot of really great matchups. We're getting a lot of phenomenal best on best games that are allowing us to really engage in college basketball in a really, really exciting way. So I have loved everything about this college basketball season so far. Uh, You know, we talk about the hideous foul fest that, and like ref show and, shot chucking game that was UNC Alabama to start this. And that was terrible. But 90% of the college basketball games I've watched this year, I've had an absolute blast watching them. And I would implore, like if you're an NBA fan, like looking for something to watch when you're not watching your NBA team and you're listening to this for future prospects and everything, go watch an Illinois game, go watch an Arizona game, go watch, um, you know, Gonzaga, go watch Baylor. Like not every team is Kentucky where they have like a terribly outdated offensive scheme. Uh, there are a lot of really, really fun teams in college basketball this year for everyone to enjoy. I think. Yeah. The game is in a great place, Sam, and it makes it a lot more enjoyable for us as people who watch a lot of college basketball to really dive in and and stay energized to to keep going back for more. But it also makes it better as an evaluator because you see these teams functioning at such a high level, competition being really strong. It it makes it a lot easier to to make statements, assumptions about players and how they're going to translate to the next level because you know the quality of what you're watching right now is so strong. It's it's been great all the way around. And and here's to a, a fantastic, you know, next couple of weeks and, and and months here as we start getting closer to conference play and seeing some of that come to fruition uh, in in rivalry moments too. Oh, um, by the way, you better believe conference play starts this week coming oh, up. Yeah, baby. Because you got the Pac-12 doing real Pac-12 bullshit by starting <laughs> Pac-12 play. <laughs> I think literally on November 30th, uh, I think is maybe the first game. And if not, it's December 1st. I know that like Arizona plays Utah on December 1st. I know that. Uh, Why you would do this to your teams, I have no idea. But nonetheless, uh, conference play starts this week, baby. Get used to it and get ready. Hell yeah. Oh, man. Spins. You have, you have, did you watch anything good on TV? I watched a lot of movies this weekend. Uh, now Spins uh, is gone. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we're going to get movie corner from Spins. Yeah, you know, not a not a movie watching week from me. Uh, World Cup, been trying to dive into some of that there, uh, you know, and watch earlier mornings. Uh, I've mentioned uh, to Sam before here, I, I was home for Thanksgiving, visiting some family, and asleep by 9 p.m. pretty much every night. So... Uh, living the dream on vacation on my end there, but alas, it doesn't save a lot of time for movie watching. So I will just relinquish my time over to the great Samuel Vicini to talk some films here. Well, you know, I will say I watched 
I watched Pearl, but I want to save some thoughts uh, on Pearl for the Wednesday pod because I know that Schindler watched it recently. And, and I, I think the Wednesday pod is going to be our horror movie corner, uh, typically, for the pod here, just because I know Schindler watches almost all of them as well. I watched Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which has maybe my favorite two minutes in a movie this year where Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall rap Knuck If You Buck by crime mob it's amazing it's like an absolutely glorious two minutes of tv just those two going back and forth like literally rapping every lyric um oh one thing i will note i watched black adam the rock superhero movie yeah oh boy is it bad Oh boy, is it bad. It's like a movie that even just technically is very bad. Uh, there are like, do you know, um, do you know like how people will come in, uh, after a movie shoots and do dialogue again? It's called ADR. It's, you know, dialogue replacement basically. And, there are moments where like the ADR where they come in and like re you know, record the dialogue doesn't even really match up with like the lips moving on like the camera. Uh, the editing is really, really bad. It's like really just like in your face, like going constantly, constantly like boom, one after another. It's, it's just a bad movie. And like the rock is just like not good in it unfortunately it's a disappointment for sure it's one time we don't want to smell what the rock is cooking oh boy i think that's exactly right it's the one time we did not want to smell what the rock was cooking all right man spins tell the people where they can find your work tell the people what's going on well sam thank you again for having me on always a pleasure being here with you and recording as we close down our weekends uh Find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore YouTube is just my name, Adam Spinella. And then our Substack, the box and one wrapping up a series right now of some of the best prospects that we've evaluated over the last five or six years that I've been doing this and going to be coming out with a, a ranking of the top 25 prospects that I've seen over that period of time. So really, Ooh, looking forward I love to, that. Yeah. Really looking forward to doing that and, and diving in over the next couple of weeks there. All right. I did rookie rankings this past week. I did uh, top 100 prospect board as well this past week over at The Athletic. So go there, check those out, read those, subscribe, do everything you can to support uh, The Athletic. Now, go to the YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. Also, hit the follow, the subscribe, whatever the button is on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating, leave a review, go have fun, go have a ball, help us out, support the show by doing whatever you can. Until next time, though, we will talk soon.